0: really easy to see the problem and not the person. And it's our role to do that with both the family and with the trauma team.
1: On this episode of Trauma Talk, my guest is Amy Clausen. She is one of our chaplains on the trauma team. We'll be discussing what their role is on the trauma team and also how to deliver difficult news to family and patients. Amy, thanks for being on the show. What inspired you to be a chaplain?
0: Everybody has their story and mine is um, actually related to experiences where I wish there had been a chaplain. Um, in My own family mother with some trauma in her experience and a son with high medical needs and learning that there are chaplains and thinking, I want to do that and fill that gap that I missed.
1: Besides being in the trauma bay with the rest of the team, where else can we find you throughout the hospital?
0: So here at Wesley, we're assigned different units. And personally, I t- uh, care for trauma and also uh, very focused on palliative care. Other chaplains are assigned to different units. And then on call, when we're it's our turn to be on call, we do take care of the entire hospital.
1: So what specifically is your role with the trauma team?
0: We have concrete roles and abstract roles. It's very, very fluid. So primarily in trauma, the first role of a chaplain is to go and assess that we know who the person is. And if we don't, I'm going to work with outside agencies to help identify the person. Then I want to figure out who the next of kin is. And sometimes I lean on outside agencies for that, do a little bit of sleuthing. We weren't necessarily trained for, we just figured out. And then then I want to connect the family. And that can look like getting them back into the bay. We can be a pain because we ask. Is it time? And we're looking for openings for that opportunity. But also connecting them just by giving them information, going out and talking to them and saying, okay, when someone goes comes in for a trauma, there's a whole team that descends. And we do a lot of looking really fast. So it's going to be a while before you get back there. And that's normal. That helps to manage some of the anxiety and fear. And we tell them, okay, we just got back from CT. It's going to be about this long. Oh, they're doing sutures. That takes a while. It'd be a good time to go get something to eat and, and just kind of help. Help them understand what is happening again because that manages the fear and anxiety. Caring for the emotions is a huge part of our job. We also look for advanced directives, especially um, with people who are maybe over 80 or came from a facility. We're going to contact the facility and make sure that they've sent any advanced directives with them. Abstractly, so like the fluid stuff would be we're always listening for needs. I call a family member and I say, Hey, we've got your loved one here. And they say, Oh, did you know that they were on their way to chemotherapy? Or I recently had someone we were working on intubating and they said they have throat cancer and you may have to trach them. That's very helpful information. So I'm listening for those things that will help the medical team with what they're doing clinically. It's really easy to see the problem and not the person. And so it's our role to do that with both the family and with the with the trauma team. We are the keepers of the story. So we reconstruct what happened. We want to be there and hear EMS. We want to hear the doctors. We want to hear law enforcement, whoever is there, and put the pieces together because that can help clinically if we can put that together and share that with the team.
1: I know I've relied on you Bay, whether it's to help identify a patient or just to be that go-between with the family and the patient on what's happening.
0: And and that's the truth. We have time to do some things that you need that you don't have time to do. And some people say, how is that spiritual care? Well, spiritual care is the whole person.
1: What other responsibilities do you have within the trauma team?
0: So- Another part of my role is as assigned trauma chaplain, I try to round with the trauma team most days, not every day, but most days. And my role in that is to find ways to connect who the patient is, what their goals and values are with the medical plan that's being made. I also do a lot of advanced directives, power of attorney for healthcare, living will, DNRs, for out, out of the hospital DNRs and advanced care planning conversations with patients and families. Also provide some staff care for the trauma team as well. So we're in all of the places that trauma goes, not just in the Bay. What
1: training and education did you undergo to become a chaplain here at Wesley Trauma?
0: So I want to tell you what is required for chaplains and then talk about that too. So in order to become a chaplain, you are expected to have a 72-hour master's degree or equivalent and. That can be from whatever faith tradition that you come from. Then you need to be endorsed by a faith tradition. There's anything from humanist, which has no religious connotation, to all of the denominations that you hear of very frequently. Another requirement is clinical pastoral education. And here at Wesley, we actually do that. There are three staff chaplains, a director, and an educator that stay at Wesley. The rest of them, uh, the chaplains that you'll see in trauma and elsewhere, are students, We have residents and we have interns. And that clinical pastoral education is, again, part of what's required to become a chaplain. And they focus on its postgraduate training, and they integrate theory and practice primarily around self-awareness, spiritual assessment, crisis response, interfaith and cultural differences, and then grief support. Most places like Wesley require board certification as a chaplain and that requires everything I already said. In addition to that, you must prove that you meet the requirements of 31 competencies, both verbally and in writing, in front of a committee of other board-certified chaplains. So it's a very Different process than most people understand. I have a faith tradition and I am ordained as a, as a minister in that tradition. At the same time, I don't work within the walls of a church because I choose not to. And that means I am here to minister to people who are agnostic, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, anything.
1: What did your educational journey look like?
0: So mine is weird. Like I said, it requires a 72-hour master's degree or equivalent. I have an equivalency. So I have a 36-hour master's degree from Friends University in Christian ministry. And then I did some different projects, graduate-level projects, some perinatal bereavement stuff, a lot of work in hospice with pediatrics that I was able to prove hours that equaled that 72 in education. I also took some additional ethics and doctrine courses
1: have you ever had the chance to officiate a wedding here at Wesley?
0: Yes. I have done weddings, not very many, but I've done weddings for patients. They have to have a marriage license. It has to be a legal a legal marriage. Um but the one that comes to mind first is a patient who was an oncology patient had planned their wedding, and then they were hospitalized for um, neutropenic precautions and at the time of their wedding was supposed to be. And so we did it in our chapel here and it was really meaningful and a gift to be a part of. I did another wedding for an oncology patient who was inpatient and it was her big sister was getting married and she wanted the patient to be at her wedding. And so we did the wedding here in the chapel so that her sister could be her bridesmaid. And and like I said, staff. We all done weddings for staff as well. Our role goes beyond just patients and families here.
1: Throughout your career, I'm sure you've had to be part of a team that has had to deliver a lot of unfortunate, life changing information to family and patients. Do you have a method that you use to communicate this thoroughly to family and patients?
0: In this setting we are partners in delivering bad news. Most often the the physician or the provider is going to do that because families are going to have medical questions that we can't answer. And so again, we are the caretakers of the emotions. We'll be present for that. We may ask clarifying questions, but but the provider's the one that will say medically what happened. However, everything that we do most of the time gets broken because of situate circumstances. And so we are sometimes the deliverer of bad news. I know that everybody, I believe in healthcare, has a desire to care for others. And that often can make us want to protect the people that we're trying to tell. And that instinct often does not serve us or the people we're speaking with well. I think in my experience of both Speaking the bad news and being present when the bad news is spoken. I have seen the best interactions around people who are very direct, using the word death or dying. Your person is dying. They have died. We often use past or we did everything we could and even sometimes end there. And the family gets done. And well, how are they? They've died. We need to say that, or they have an injury so bad that they're likely or possibly going to die. I think that's really important. And that can be done with compassion. One of the biggest challenges in delivering bad news is that we don't know. As um, medical providers, we've seen people who we expected to do very poorly do well. And so knowing when to deliver the bad news is really challenging. People want a percentage How likely this person is to die or to get better, we don't know the answer to that. And being able to deliver that information, naming the uncertainty, is also very helpful.
1: Do you find the sentence doing everything we can, helpful or hurtful?
0: I think it's not bad, but I think there are better things because everything we can, what does that actually mean? That means we are going to give all the medication that we have available to keep your person alive. That means if their heart stops, we are going to do chest compressions. That means if they're not breathing on their own, we will stick a tube down their throat to protect their airway if they're not awake enough or to help them breathe if they can't. To be more specific, I think is really helpful. I know there's not always time for that. And I want to honor that truth. And so finding somehow the balance, often people are asked, do you want us to do everything that we can to keep your loved one alive? Well, sure. Do they want to be on a ventilator? No, that's part of everything we can. And so sometimes families are surprised by finding out that interventions have been done that they didn't realize they were saying yes to. When we say that, then I'm saying also not in medical language. So often in these conversations, the providers are using language that is common in the hospital, but sounds like foreign language to people who don't spend time here, making sure that it's not dumbing it down. It's not being condescending. It is just finding the most common and direct word and knowing that we're protecting families differently when we're we're doing that. We're protecting them from having regrets about doing things they didn't want. We're protecting families from having to grieve several times because they thought, well, maybe they're going to get better, and then they have to grieve all over again.
1: Do you have to adapt your approach based on a person's culture or religion?
0: So I think one of the things is, is most of us want to be culturally sensitive. And there's a difference between cultural competency, which is what the education used to say, says, I know about different cultures and cultural humility, which is what I practice. Just because someone is of a specific culture doesn't mean that they are meet the stereotypes or the most common practices for that group. And so asking questions is so important. What For you is meaningful in this time. What needs do you have? It can be that nobody touches the body for a certain period of time. How do we adapt and get as close as we can to that? There are people who need maybe candles. We can't do that in the hospital. So, how do we adapt? Maybe it's someone who, in the dying time, needs a window open. Well, the hospital windows don't open. Can we take them to the ambulance bay? Are there different things that we can do? But it's always about asking, having a conversation, assessing, not assuming.
1: I really like your view of never assume. That really holds true to a lot of different things within the trauma team. Anything else you would recommend healthcare providers recognize when dealing with family or a patient?
0: And I think another piece of that is, is—is I know there are patterns, right? And so I know that there are communities who tend to be more kinetic in their grief. They grieve with their bodies, and they're very yeah. vocal, and maybe even throw themselves on the floor. You know what? Yeah. That's okay. Let's just make sure we're in a safe place. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to let people do the grieving, however it works for them. If we suppress that, we're not helping. It's really hard because many people become uncomfortable, especially with the very visible grief. And uh, we want to make people not cry. And the truth is crying's really, really helpful in that time. And so assessing, is this just making me uncomfortable? Or is there something I actually need to change here? Because the thing I can change is the person who's uncomfortable can leave. Recognizing, too, that we often impose what we need on families. And so in delivering bad news, there are cultures that the patient should not be told, it should actually be a family member. And I had a patient patient once where the nurse called and said, this is terrible, this man is dying, and he doesn't even know it. And the family won't let me tell them, I don't know what to do. And so I went to assess. And I talked to the patient. And I said, my understanding is we're giving the medical information to your son. What do you want us to do? And he said, oh, you must tell my son everything, and he will tell me what I should know. And so I turned around and told that to the nurse, and she still didn't like it. It wasn't comfortable for her, but she could live with it because we were still honoring the patient. Yeah. So, so just, again, that cultural piece of bad news.
1: Amy, thanks for being on the show. If you have any questions for Amy or ideas for an upcoming episode, you can always reach me at aaron.sutton
0: at wesleymc.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.